of this journey of grace, uh, discipleship as a journey of grace, uh, looking at the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and it's all about grace. You've heard already our passage of scripture, a long passage, but it shows us the full story, and thanks to Dave's class and all our readers this morning that helped us with that. Um, not seeing PowerPoint up there, I guess they're trying to pull it up. Uh, last week, great, thanks. Uh, last week, we looked at what grace is, right? Grace is God's unmerited favor. Favor. You've done nothing to deserve grace. You've done nothing to earn grace. Remember we said the best word for grace is what? Gift. Grace is a gift. And grace is a person. It's not a substance or a thing. Grace is a person. And we already sang about the name of Jesus. About Jesus. The presence of Jesus. And so grace is a person. Jesus. And, and so we saw that last week. And this week now we're moving on into God's sneaky grace. And now hopefully you'll understand that a little more further on. Uh, one of my favorite movies as a child, I think one of my first experiences of seeing a movie in a theater, was Sleeping Beauty. And I was just amazed by this story of Sleeping Beauty. She's a princess under the enchanted spell of a wicked queen. And she is left in a perpetual state of sleep. Some of you would say amen to that. <laughs> uh, the only way, the only way that Sleeping Beauty can be awakened and the spell broken in her life is a kiss from her prince. And his kiss will awaken her from her comatose state. Now, guys, you've had a major setup, haven't you? <laughs> when you think of little girls have been raised that way to think that that's what their prince can do. Uh, but I love this song that we heard many years ago, and this is what came to me as I was reading and preparing this week. Godfrey Bertel, quite a, quite a few years back, had a song that said, Just one touch from the king. Here's a few words. There's a battle raging over this land, a deep damage in the people, yet pride stops us, stretching out our withered hand, yet God has stretched out to heal us. This I know, he says, this I know, and he shouts in the song, just one touch from the king changes everything. Just one touch from the king changes everything. The Bible says that human souls, because of the curse of the fall, are in spiritual death. They are in a spiritual death sleep. And unable to do anything about it, they are in a spiritual comatose state. And the King of Kings, the Prince has come, and He touches us. And that spell is broken once and for all. God makes a way for us and we are entered into a new awakening and a new reality. Today we're talking about that grace that comes before, that sneaky grace. Uh, David Busick, our, our general superintendent who has written the book and, this, and others have written on the book, the sermon series, uh, he calls it God's seeking grace. We've used that term a lot. Uh, in the church, God's seeking grace that begins to come and awaken something in us. 
In Wesleyan theology, we call it God's prevenient grace. The grace that comes before. It is that grace that comes before, that's working in our lives. It is the grace that we see any before any human makes a decision or an endeavor. It's the love of God wooing us. It's the will of God drawing us. It's the desire of God pursuing us. It is the gift of God freeing us. It's the activity of God empowering us. We call it God's seeking grace. Prevenient grace. See, God is the one who comes seeking us first. Right from the beginning of time. That's the truth. We can only respond to God. We can only seek God because God has been seeking us. Even when we were in our mother's womb, the psalmist talks about. Even then, that's why we believe in the power of a child unborn in the womb. Because the grace of God is even seeking the unborn in their mother's wombs. Wesley believed that from birth, God's grace is active in all persons. Seeking to draw them into eternal life and relationship with Jesus Christ. And so God's grace goes before us. And because it goes before us, we call it the way. And we know his name. His name is Jesus. He is the way. And God's grace goes there to draw us into relationship with him. And today we're talking about that grace. The grace that goes before. Seeking grace, sneaky grace, prevenient grace. It is the grace that seeks us out. Do you remember where you were before Christ? I hope you do. Because it sure helps you to appreciate where you are today. Amen. See, we all have a BC, don't we? We all have a before Christ. <laughs> we all have a story. Uh, uh, somewhere where Christ has come in to touch us. And there are those today that are before Christ, pre-Christ. There's all kinds of terms that we use today. That God's grace is already there working Preveniently to draw them to himself. I hope you use your rear view mirror. We're supposed to. I know when you do your driver's test, they always check on that. But rear view mirrors are great because they let us see where we've come from. And we want to think about that today. Where have we come from? Where has God brought us? Where has God worked in our lives? And the truth of it is, if you were to look over your shoulder, if you were to look in the rearview mirror of your life, if you are in Christ today, you can see the places where God's prevenient grace has been working in your life. The things that were said, the things that were done, the things that were read, the people that God brought across your path. Rearview mirrors are wonderful for that. I brought our family Bible today. Some of you came in and wondered why there were two Bibles at the front of the church. <laughs> and, and Pastor Mike and I were far from God. We were not uh, uh, living a life that would honor God. We didn't have a personal relationship with God. And, and, but something within us said that we wanted a family Bible. And so we went into a Christian bookstore and bought a family Bible and brought that family Bible home. The Bible that you see before you. That, by the way, that family Bible has traveled with us all around the globe. <laughs> 
and, and we can, I can still see the living room. I can see the drapes. I can see the color of the wall. I can see the sofa we sat on. And, and every once in a while, for some reason, him and I would sit down and we would open the family Bible, not even knowing where to read, not even knowing what to do, even though I was raised in the church in Sunday school. And, and Pastor Mike was an altar boy in the church. And had done catechism. At that point in our lives, we were clueless. But we knew that for some reason we wanted to sit and read the Word of God. And so we sat there to read the Word of God. And then we closed the Bible real quick. And we'd look at each other and say, did you feel that? And, and, and we both had felt the presence of God. As we were reading God's Word, we felt the presence of God with us in that moment, in that room. Something supernatural was happening, and we were kind of terrified of it, and we'd close it back up again. <laughs> what was it? That was God's seeking grace, seeking after us, giving us that opportunity to bring His Word into our home and, and reading His Word. And God was beginning to work on us. Page, uh, in, in a quote in the book by our General Superintendent David Buzik, he says, The Holy Spirit of God awakens person, persons to their need for salvation, convicts them of sin, and applies the atonement of Christ as they respond in faith. See, grace doesn't just begin at your moment of conversion. Grace doesn't just begin at that place of salvation. Grace was working long before you even realized it, and even before you knew it. It even was working when you were unaware of God and didn't care about God. His grace has been working. See, we don't naturally seek God. We are fallen and far from God. We don't naturally seek God, but you know what? God comes seeking for us. Hallelujah. He comes seeking for us. And, and you know, there's a, there's a wrong theology. We, we hear it in some of our gospel songs, and we've said it ourselves, and I probably will say it again, but we'll use that term, I found Jesus. <laughs> and, and we don't realize in that statement when we make that, it's almost like Jesus is in the corner hiding somewhere, and we got to go find him, like hide and seek. The truth is, he comes running after us. He has been coming for us. And what happens is in that moment we realize that God's seeking grace has been seeking us. And our eyes are open to see the truth. And in that moment we respond to his grace. We say, yes, Jesus. I like what this scripture tells us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, No one comes to Christ. Christ comes to us and we respond. Listen to the scripture. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. When we got our life all together? When we said the right words? No, Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. See, the truth of it is today, all of us before Christ, pre-Christ, B.C., were all spiritually dead. 
Remember we said that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. If Jesus is the life, then without Jesus we are what? Spiritually dead. And the truth is because of the fall, because of the curse, we are spiritually dead. Scripture talks about three forms of death. There is the physical death that we tend to talk about a lot, and, and we our, our minds think about a lot, but there is also spiritual death, and there is eternal death. And so sometimes we struggle when Jesus says, I am the life, I am the resurrection, those who believe in me shall not die. What death is he talking about? <laughs> He's talking about that spiritual death. He's talking about, more importantly, that eternal death. You will never taste that eternal death. Oh, you'll have to go through a physical death. But you are made alive in Christ, and you will not have to experience eternal death. So Scripture talks about three deaths. And so we see that the truth of it is, you can say, well, hello, pastor, I'm alive. You can pinch me, and I will say, ouch. Uh, I'm alive here today. I'm physically alive. Yes, you are. But you can be physically alive and yet spiritually dead. It, it, it is like anyone that used to watch that show, The Walking Dead. <laughs> People are going around trying to live life. It has no meaning. Oh, they're physically alive, but they haven't even yet experienced their purpose for even life itself. And they are spiritually dead, like zombies walking around. And in the midst of all that death, God's seeking grace, his provenient grace, comes to us just where we are. It's not the other way around. It's not like we go to God. God has come to us. That is why you can even respond. It's because of his wonderful grace. <laughs> See, other faiths will often say we have to go and seek the God. We have to bow down to a statue of a God. We, we have to come and bring gifts to that God, to appease that God, to please that God, to hopefully that God will do something for me and my family. Christianity is completely different. God comes seeking us. God comes seeking us. All throughout Scripture, you will see God seeking us. Seeking humanity. I was thinking about even in the garden, Adam and Eve had messed up big time. We know of the fall. We know of the original sin. And because of that sin, Scripture says that they hid from God in their shame. Uh, chapter 3 of Genesis verse 9 says, And the Lord called. And the Lord called to the man. Where are you? That's grace. That's God's provenient grace. God has been seeking us. God has been looking for us. And he cries out to us, where are you? God is the first one, my friends, and all the awakenings, the conversions, the transformations, the revivals that you hear in history, it is through his Holy Spirit. He awakens our spiritual sensitivities we are drawn to God like a moth to the flame. God is the great lover of our soul through Jesus Christ. And he is wooing people to his heart. Our passage today that we heard is about God's sneaky grace in action in Acts 10. And you can see it all throughout scripture. God calling people, wooing people to himself. This story in the book of Acts 
the story of Peter and Cornelius is the amazing turning point in the gospel in the early church. Because it is the moment when an outsider and his household are admitted into the fellowship of faith. We're told that Cornelius is a Roman centurion. The writer of Acts, Luke, is telling us important points here for us to fully understand. He's stationed in Caesarea. Caesarea was the headquarters of the government of Palestine. And the Roman army, there were legions. And those legions, there were 6,000 men. And those 6,000 men uh, were divided into 10 cohorts of 600. We have cohorts of 50. They were cohorts of 600. Those cohorts of 600 were then divided into hundreds, centuries. That means a hundred. And so a centurion was a man over a hundred Roman soldiers. So we're told that Cornelius was a centurion. They were the backbone of the Roman army. They were the ones who would stand firm. They would die for the cause. And so we know he is a man who is courageous and loyal and steadfast. We're also told, though, this centurion is a God-fearer. So if he's a God-fearer, what it meant was his ancient ancestral faith of worshipping his ancestors, of worshipping many little gods the Romans would have and carry with them. Uh, even army men would carry them out to war. Little gods of ancestors, the different ones that they were praying to so they could pray to their gods. It means somewhere here this centurion got frustrated with his faith as a Roman and he had turned to the Jewish faith. When it says that he had turned to the Jewish faith, it means that he would attend a synagogue on a regular basis. It also means that as he was there, he must have come to a place where he believed in the one true God. We're told that he is a very generous man. He was giving gifts to the poor. He was compassionate and kind. And we're also told that he was a man who prayed to God. Do you realize there's a lot of people in our community today that are good people that we would consider very similar to Cornelius? God-fearing people, we say. God-fearing people. You know, it's almost like Cornelius is like a child looking through a piece of glass as he has his face pushed up against it while he's watching all the insiders uh, enjoying a great meal. And he's just the outsider looking in. But what's beautiful in this passage today is God had a different plan for Cornelius. And God has a different plan for those that are feeling like outsiders, just out standing outside and looking in. Now we know in our passage about Peter, don't we? Peter was that disciple that Jesus called and said, you're going to be a rock, Peter. That's what actually Peter means, Petra, rock. And, and, and so we know that he's the one who denied the Lord three times, and he is outside again of the faith. And Jesus decides to have the first men's breakfast, and Peter now is invited to eat with the Lord, and they take that nice long walk together, and he's reinstated. And so Peter sees and receives this great commissioning. He sees the Lord ascended and taken up, and now he's the one who received the Holy Spirit and he preached that great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And thousands. Can you imagine preaching your first sermon? Can you imagine Bracton preaching your first sermon? Or Pastor Sheila, Pastor, preaching your first sermon. Thousands were added to the church in one day. Wow. 
You know, that's amazing. This is Peter. Guess what? Peter needed to learn an important lesson before God could use him as a minister of grace. Is it possible today that no matter how many years you've walked with the Lord, no matter what has happened in your life, no matter all the great things, even filled with the Holy Spirit, sanctified, set apart for God, that God just might want to teach you something today? See, there had to be a shift in Peter's thinking. God in his grace was also working in Peter's heart and life. See, Peter had come from a rigid religious upbringing, and he was taught that God has no use for Gentiles. God has no place. They're the scum of the earth. And those Romans, they're the enemy. They're not welcome. They're not to be trusted. Often you'll hear the church say, those people. <laughs> and in our passage, God's grace was already working in Peter's life. How do we know that? The book of Acts tells us that he was meeting at Simon, living at Simon the Tanner's house. Why is that significant? Simon the Tanner would have had to live outside the town, and that's where Peter has gone. Many believe that Simon the Tanner was probably someone who had come to faith. Why is this significant? A tanner was dealing with dead bodies and carcasses all day long, and as they did that, that made them ceremonially unclean. So no good upstanding Jew would ever stay with Simon the Tanner. And yet this is where we see Peter. God is already working in Peter's heart and life as he stays with Simon the Tanner in Joppa. Interesting enough, the homes were very small in those days, and if you wanted any privacy, you went up to the roof. And so Peter goes up to the roof to have this time of prayer with the Lord. But surprisingly to Peter, uh, this vision comes to him, and this sail comes down, and three times it comes down, and it is filled with all kinds of animals, animals that the rigid, religious Jew, who had strict food uh, directions, would never eat. Praise God, lobster was probably there. Hallelujah, crab too. <laughs> and no, no Jew would ever eat that stuff. And so the Lord says, go and eat it. Peter, have a feast. And Peter is like, oh no, Lord, I've never touched anything on clean and ate that kind of stuff. And as Pastor Mike said, God says to him very powerfully, do not call anything impure that God has made clean, Peter. Three times he has to hear it. <laughs> we realize that God shows no favoritism, no partiality. Peter had to learn this lesson just before Cornelius' men come knocking at the door. And so we heard that scripture read there in verse 23. And so Cornelius' men... It's interesting, Peter does something amazing. God starts to break down the divisions because we're told in that situation, these Roman men, Cornelius' men that have been sent, Peter now welcomes them into the house and they stay there with Peter. Unheard of. Absolutely unheard of that a Jew would welcome Romans <laughs> to come and feast at his table and stay with him. And we see that God is already working in Peter's life to tear down those divisive barriers. Peter is invited then into Cornelius' home. 
Peter's knocking at Cornelius' door. And we see once again another barrier being broken. So it's not just this Jew welcoming into his home, but now this upstanding Jew needs to walk into a Roman home. And another barrier is being torn down. And so in the midst of all of this, we see God's provenient grace working behind the scenes in Peter's life, in Cornelius' life, in his family, it says, close family and friends' life, as they gather to hear what Peter has to say. You want to see how God is working in this passage? How does God work today in people's lives? You'll see crossroads. What do we mean by that? You ever feel you've been in a crossroad in life? Uh, we call it midlife crisis. <laughs> Doesn't have to happen at midlife. The pandemic and COVID has brought a crisis or a crossroad. There is that place where you know that you're tired the way it is. Like we talked about uh, Cornelius giving up his gods and becoming a God-fearer. That would be a crossroad. There's a place in our life when there's a holy dissatisfaction with life as the way we know it. And we are at a crossroad to make a decision. That is God's provenient grace working on you and your heart and life. Then we see curiosity. We see that, that, that Cornelius went to search and seek. The angel comes to him and gives him this vision to go and get this Peter. And he gathers his close relatives and his closest friends to hear what this Peter has to say. God is using curiosity. God used curiosity for us as we sat down to read God's word. There's something that God is beginning to do. That's God's provenient grace. When people start to want to know more, when people start to ask questions about the faith, when people hang around longer than they normally used to because they want to hear more and they want to dive in more and study more, then companionship. We know already God has been working Cornelius' life because he had been circling himself with other godly people. He's watching faith lived out. He's hearing the word of God in the synagogue. We believe, many believe, that there were already Christian believers in that synagogue probably praying for Cornelius to come to faith. And so in companionship, the goodness of what's happening in other people's lives are beginning to rub off on him and he's desiring more of God. And so he's praying for God to show up and God shows up in that companionship. You know, right around the time we were reading the Bible and feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit, we had somebody knock at our door. Mel and Maud. Mel and Maud were two individuals from our parents' church at the time, my home church. They were not boyfriend, girlfriend. They were just two Christian friends who heard my parents pray for Betty and Mike. And in the midst of hearing <clears throat> them pray for Betty and Mike, they felt the Holy Spirit say to them, you need to travel half an hour up to Brampton, go get their address, and go knock on their door and introduce yourselves, and leave it with me. And so we were at a night, it happened to be a night we were home, we were just probably a night after we had been partying, <laughs> And we'll leave that at that, what that looked like. And uh, they knocked on our door. Complete strangers. And of course, like any good Canadian, you welcome them in. And we welcomed them in, looked at each other like, what's this about? And sat down and had coffee with them. And God began a friendship with Mel and Maude. A companionship. 
are walking alongside of us in our curiosity and companions with us that lived out faith before us and tried their best to answer our questions. But more importantly than anything else, they were honest and real and cared. And I know they prayed for us. We are where we are today because of the companionship of Mel and Mom. And then conviction. Because of all of that going on, because they came knocking at our door, the Holy Spirit began to knock at our heart's door. And in verse 34 and 40 through 43, Peter shares this wonderful truth of the gospel and this large gathering. In verse 44, we are told that Peter was still speaking when the Holy Spirit fell on them. And they heard the message. Conviction is the grace that begins to align our lives to the kingdom of God even before we are part of the kingdom. It is that work that God is doing. And so we are on this journey as uh, discipleship, as a journey of grace. And I want to tell you today, my friends, we need to understand that it doesn't just start at conversion. It starts way back there as we look back and see God ministering and working in our hearts and lives. That's where the journey began. God making a way for us. God's unmerited favor when we didn't deserve it. When we were living lives that were ungodly, God came seeking us, looking for us. God is the one through his spirit that draws us. I like what Pastor Sheila said a few weeks ago. It is us who witness and God the Holy Spirit convicts. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. So in our passage today, we see God's provenient grace at work. We see it working in Cornelius' life. We see it working in that gathering of friends and neighbors and family. But we also see God's provenient grace working where? In Peter's heart and life. Peter needed to think differently, have a transformation in order for God to use him as a minister of grace. You know, we sang that song, I want to speak the name of Jesus over people's lives. Where is God working today? Where are people that are B.C.? pre-Christ, before Christ, that God is working. Maybe you're a person in the church today that you would say, I'm before Christ, I'm a God-fearer, and, and things have been drawing me, and I didn't fully understand what it was. I've been feeling his presence at times when we worship. I see other people excited, and I don't understand it all. That is God's provenient grace working in your life, drawing you to not me or this church, drawing you to him. We have to ask ourselves, as the Church of Jesus Christ, where is God working in the lives of others outside this church? Who are those that are B.C., that provenient grace has been working? You see, because in the reality of that, God calls us then to come alongside them, and we'll see the change and transformation that needs to happen in their lives, because God is working. I believe with everything within me, God is working. But in order for God to work through us, what shift needs to happen in our thinking? What shift needs to happen in your thinking? 
Uh, I was thinking often in the church, and pastors have a heavy load to carry. It's all put on our shoulders because if people are going to come knocking on the door, if people are going to walk alongside people, if people are going to see people saved, the church usually thinks that's the pastor's role. Wrong. That needs a shift that needs to happen. Because Ephesians tells us that the pastor's role is to equip the, work, equip the saints for the work of ministry. I can't go knocking on the doors that you can go. I don't know the people and their situation like you know. Oh, I can be in a church, I can pray, I can witness, I can do what God's calling me to do as a pastor. But ultimately, only you can be used by God in the sphere of influence that you have. And sometimes there's a shift in our thinking that needs to make that a reality. Could that be what God is wanting to do today? Maybe God needs to shift our thinking. God admonished Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Judgments? Attitudes? Is there things that God is needing to work in our lives and change? As I bring this to a close and the worship team comes... This passage ends with a great celebration. I love that it ends with a great celebration. They come to faith, and there is a church birth. Can you imagine? So many people are gathered now in Cornelius' home, and the Spirit falls on them, and we see the gifts of the Spirit being there, and all of a sudden, they're going through the waters of baptism, not just one or two, but the whole household, the friends, the relatives, everyone is got saved at the same time, and they all go through the waters of baptism together. And there is this great celebration with Peter and the other uh, believers that followed. We're told that some other believers followed Peter and Cornelius and this unity and this blessing that God is doing there. And so this discipleship as a journey of grace has begun for Cornelius and that group. And they ask Peter to stay so that he can instruct them and disciple them in the faith. And so it's a beautiful picture. Praise God today for his prevenient grace. Praise God for his grace that has gone before. Maybe today your homework is to go home and look in the rearview mirror. And look at all those places in your life. That Sunday school teacher that prayed for you. That person in the church that was a witness to you and showed what godliness was like. That person in the community, that person who witnessed to you and shared the good news. Where has God's grace been working in your life? Where did it work in your life before Christ? You need to give God thanks today and praise for that. Because you are where you are today because of that provenient grace. You are where you are today because God has been seeking you and wooing you with this wonderful love like a moth is drawn to a flame. God's love has been drawing you to himself today. Now ultimately, Cornelius made the right choice. God's grace was working in Cornelius' life and all those gathered, but he had a choice that day. He had to respond to God's grace. Like we all who have come to faith, we've said yes to Jesus. Cornelius and that crowd said yes to Peter and the message and ultimately yes to Jesus. But we also can reject God's grace. I, I pray today that you are one that has accepted God's grace and will not 
rejected. Some of you today would say, Pastor, it's time for me to pledge my allegiance. I woke a few up to Christ. See, Cornelius pledged his allegiance to Rome. He had to come to a place where he pledged his allegiance to Christ. Have you pledged allegiance to Christ? Do you know how we pledge allegiance to Christ? We show that through the waters of baptism. I no longer live. But Christ now lives in me. I die with Christ in the waters and come alive in Christ. That is my, my symbol of pledging my allegiance to Christ. And I know there's one person and possibly a second who's been wanting to be baptized. And I think time is coming that it's time to have a baptismal service in the Elmsdale Church of the Nazarene. COVID or no COVID. We'll find a way to make it happen. Maybe you're going to be obedient to God today and you're going to say, Pastor, I'd like to be baptized. I'd like to learn more about it. Maybe like Peter, we're going to allow God to do a deeper work in us that we can become ministers of His grace in a time like this. Many of you know this song, Corey Asbury. We're not going to sing it, but... A lot of people have had issues with it because, see, there's this idea of God's divine appointments are waiting for all of us. And God is doing what he needs to do to, to come to us. And we sing that wonderful song, The Reckless Love of God. Now, a lot of people don't like the word reckless because they don't like that given to God. But I can understand Corey's heart because it seems so reckless because it doesn't make sense because I'm such a sinner and I'm so far from God. Why would he come running after me? Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. And I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. There's no shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. Lie you won't tear down. Coming after me. That's God's seeking grace. Praise God today for his sneaky grace. That didn't give up on me. That didn't give up on you. And will not give up on those that we are praying for. And those that God is going to send us forth to go knocking on doors and being God's instruments of grace. Father, we come today now. We ask and surrender this service to your glory as we did at the beginning. In this moment of this closing song, would you come and move and speak to people as only you can? This is a house of your grace. And we give you permission to do business with us today. Do you need to shift our thinking today, Lord? Amen to it. Do we need to allow you to come in and not reject your grace and respond and say, Amen, yes, Jesus, I love you. Yes, Jesus, I want to serve you. Yes, Jesus, I proclaim you are my King and my Lord and my Savior. And some of us, Lord, need to be obedient to your voice and say, I pledge allegiance to the Lamb and it's time that I go through the waters of baptism just like Cornelius and his whole household. Speak to us today, Spirit, as you would speak, and we leave the rest with you. Yes. In Jesus' precious name, amen.
and amen. Stand with us as we sing.